Hi, everyone, and welcome to Urban Green's podcast, Building Tomorrow, where we bring you conversations with climate solvers. Every day, we meet people who make a big difference in the built environment and are moving us closer to a low-carbon future. We want you to hear their stories. My name is Ellen Honigstock. I'm the Senior Director of Education here at Urban Green. And today's episode of Building Tomorrow is a recording of an interview between our CEO, John Mandike, and New York City's controller, Brad Lander. This interview was recorded at an event called Decarbonizing Finance to Combat Climate Change that we hosted on September 13th, 2023, in collaboration with the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Comptroller Lander is responsible for the management of over $240 billion in pension funds and is leveraging this role to drive carbon disclosure, including scope three emissions from the companies in which pension funds are invested. We're excited to bring you this interview. It was recorded live, so the sound quality is a little less than perfect. I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, On behalf of Urban Green Council, I want to thank everybody for joining us today for this really um, exciting topic of decarbonizing finance. And we're just thrilled to have our special guest speaker here today. You know, one of the strongest supporters of sustainability and net zero is our 45th controller of New York City, Brad Lander. Um, Controller Lander has been a champion for sustainability since his early days in the city council that we've been working with him directly since 2009 and was one of the chief architects of Local Law 97 that we worked um, hand in glove with and that's part of the discussion we're gonna have today plus so many other laws. He's really taken this whole issue to a whole new level in his office um, with the city's $250 billion pension fund and the requirements to re- reach net zero emissions by 2040. So we're honored he joined us today. So please welcome Controller Lander. You know, you've been a champion for carbon disclosure for so long, but particularly in your new role. Um, how can government lead on the issue of carbon disclosure? Uh, you know, there's a lot uh, that government has to do on disclosure. Uh, you know, certainly the most important thing is the SEC finalizing its uh, its disclosure rule, and that's now taken a long time. And there's real reason to worry that it's been weakened in that period. I think a year ago at this time, we were pretty optimistic about some elements of scope three emissions being included. And now I assume like all of you were worried that isn't going to happen. And scope three emissions are also known as 70% of emissions. So uh, just covering 30% of emissions is not so great. Um, uh, You know, obviously that's, you know, the most critical investment disclosure step. Uh, But there's, you know, I think there's also a role at a lot of other levels, obviously in a different way, Local Law 97 itself at the building's emissions level is uh, started with benchmarking and that's a good reminder that like what you need is both, you know, you need disclosure, you need thoughtful and ambitious targets, and then you need a real specific uh, enforceable pathway to hitting those targets while you keep disclosing. And we don't have that feedback in investment in particular, you know, everyone has ever, the vast majority of investors have made vague, non-specific Paris commitments to net zero, um, uh, but there is not a uniform standard even for disclosure, and there certainly aren't science-based, specific, enforceable targets for hitting them. So, we talked about the SEC, it's so important, but I guess my question to you is, um, does it really even matter now? I mean. 
actions you're taking in other cities, the European Union has already moved on. They've passed their SEC type rule. And now two days ago, uh, the state of California uh, passed legislation requiring scope one, two, and three um, disclosure. Is the horse already out of the barn? Do we still need the SEC? Oh, I, I guess I think we do still need the SEC. I mean, that won't be enough because look, I mean, if what we get is scope one and two disclosure requirements, but not scope three, and of course, disclosure is good, but it's got to go along with a specific set of commitments and you know, kind of science-based targets and then real consequences for not hitting them. At the same time, it, rem it is a problem uh, that there just isn't a common set of standards that people are using. Um, and you know, we find that a real challenge. It is like apples to apples comparisons are critical. And I do think the SEC rule um, is important. So you alluded to this. Most companies say they're net zero. There was this kind of rush to net zero after, um, after the Paris Accord. Um, but in practice, most of those pledges aren't really real, yeah. covering all scopes uh, with verification. Your team and you have actually done some measurements on this. What, what have you found with, with the portfolio on versus what, how many people are taking pledges and what, what, do you, what do you actually deem as real? Yeah. No, this I think is the moment, you know, and, and a, a year and a half ago when I started, it was, you know, in some ways just before Republicans had launched this like preposterous, phony culture war against ESG. And what I was really concerned about then and I remain concerned about now is, you know, uh, essentially greenwashing. Uh, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of investors, uh, yes, made a non-specific, non-enforceable, non-show-your-work pledge to net zero by some date far off in the future that they don't actually feel accountable for it. You know, the CEO doesn't think uh, he or she will be the CEO in 2050. So like, yeah, someone will figure that out and I don't know, maybe there'll be some carbon capture and I'm just not actually gonna make a real plan that shows someone to get there that can be verified through some form of science-based targets and, um, and start reporting year over year against that plan with some consequences if we don't hit it. It's pretty straightforward that you either have that or you have no plan at all. Like, and what we can now see are all the places where actors who made those pledges are quite clearly violating them. So let's take the banks, you know, for an example. I mean, America's biggest bank, JP Morgan Chase, made its net zero in 2020. Uh, since 2020, they have lent $150 billion on the expansion of fossil fuel extraction. They refuse to make uh, absolute emissions targets. They use what are called intensity targets. Uh, and you can make your intensity target go, go your intensity target go down uh, even while you're increasing your oil and coal extraction just by increasing your natural gas extraction faster <coughs> since it's got a lower ratio. Um, but you're putting more emissions into the air. So, um, you know, and yet, so, so JP Morgan Chase's Paris Pledge is meaningless until they take some real actions that unfortunately, um, that's true of US banks broadly, not one major US bank uh, has set a timeline just for ceasing to lend on new fossil fuel extraction, even in coal. Uh, European banks a little further ahead, BNP Paribas, um, 
uh, HSBC. I mean, obviously, got to be pushed a lot further, but are further than for the U.S. banks. Or I'll give you just one more uh, example that, that Jamie Statter on our team was has shared with me recently. So we are looking at the finance emissions in our portfolio by sector, um, and we've set a goal that 70% of our portfolio companies will have not just a vague net zero commission, uh, commitment, but science-based targets, uh, you know, a, a, a verifiable, enforceable plan to get there uh, by 2025, and scope, uh, in scopes one and two, and that 90% of our financed emissions will have uh, science-based targets across all three scopes by the end of the decade. So now we're going through pretty specifically sector by sector. In the utilities sector, which is obviously a very significant committer to emissions in our portfolio since we've divested from fossil fuel reserve owners, so utilities are, are a big chunk of our finance commission uh, uh, emissions, 90% of portfolio companies made a uh, net zero commitment. Anyone want to guess what percent of them have science-based targets? It's better than zero. <laughs> it's even double digits, uh, but it's as low in double digits as you can get, 11%. So 90% have a Paris commitment, 11% have science-based targets, and again, like a uh, I feel like a commitment without a science-based target is almost worse than no commitment at all. Like it's not just real; it's as though you don't think anyone, you know, will actually take your word seriously. So that's the gap that we're busy working on closing, and that's also why it's so important to be with people who are working on data and aligned disclosure. Because while I think the SEC rule will be good for a commitment on standardizing emissions reporting, standardizing that science-based target setting, standardizing the process for what actually counts as a real verifiable, you can report on it every year, know if you're achieving it or not, and everyone can explicitly agree you're on path or not. We don't have broad and uniform and shared standards. We in our plan, um, uh, our site, the SBTI, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, and that's what we are going to count as uh, you can, you know, as credentialing. We are open to other possibilities. We're eager to work with people um, because if we can build a broad agreement around that, and if people adopt it, then those commitments will get real. And if we can't, then they're not going to be worth the paper they're written on. So let's get, continue on that theme. So since the Paris Climate Accord was signed, actually, um, banks have provided $5 trillion in capital to expand um, GDP. Uh, I'm sorry, $5 trillion of capital to expand fossil fuels, which is like the GDP of Japan from an from a equivalency standpoint. Um, so now, since that time, some banks is, are taking action. Um, some are, some are. Um, European banks seem to be ahead. We have a European bank on the panel after us that's going to share some of the cool things we're doing. And they've set absolute emissions targets. I will say that about, you know, of the U.S. banks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman, Morgan Stanley only have these intensity targets. Uh, City, Wells, and though they're not a U.S. bank, Deutsche Bank do have absolute emissions targets. So that's not the same as a commitment to stop blending on new oil, uh, uh, gas, and coal extraction, but it's a lot better than not doing it, that's for sure. So how do you think scope three, so scope three for a bank Everything. is 
they're financed emissions. Scope three for a bank is their loan. But scope three is a product. Scope a product. three for a bank is everything. You know, scope I mean, like, let's just, I, so, I, does everyone know scopes, the scopes one, two, and three definitions? Should we do them? That, let me say them quickly because, yeah. like, there's a lot of lingo. So, so scope one are the emissions that come from what you generate on your site or in your plant. So if you're a factory you're making something, then you have emissions, and you know that smokestack. That's your those are your emissions. But banks don't have a lot of smokestacks. They're you know not like I don't know. Um, scope two is the emissions from the electricity that you you buy. Uh, so okay, there's lights and computers at the banks, but you know, scope three is essentially everything else. That is all your upstream and downstream emissions. If you're a car company, uh, that's when uh, fossil fuels are burned in the gas tanks of your vehicles. It's hardly incidental. And if you're a bank or financial institution, that's the emissions from the things you are financing. Um, and I'll just say it is possible to do this. BNP, uh, uh, BP's uh, 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 net zero commitment is scope three inclusive. So there are companies committing to genuine scope three net zero targets. And, and again, our 70% you know, of overall emissions are scope three. So to help us understand, how will that be transformative? When banks have to disclose scope three, what's going to change? Well, it, and again, nothing will change unless their disclosure of scope three goes along with them setting science-based targets to get to net zero. But if, if what we understand a net, genuine net zero commitment to mean is that by 2050, assuming that's your date, and, and we've set an earlier goal, but let's assume you know, most of the goals are 2050, um, that you know, if we understand that by 2050, your scopes one, two, and three emissions will get to net zero, then I think you would quickly say, huh, maybe we better actually stop lending on new coal, gas, and oil extraction because that's taking us in the other direction, not going down. And again, I mean, for a bank to say by 2050, I'll be net zero in the lights in the bank and the boiler in the basement is just worth nothing. Like I know, you know, like for banks, way more than 70% of their total financed emissions are scope three. So that's just the whole ball game. Um, uh, and again, this really is about taking the long-term view because let's just remember, it's not just, you know, sort of finance against the good of the planet. If we don't succeed in hitting those net zero targets by 2050 and keeping warming under you know, let's call it two degrees Celsius, um, we will burn up trillions of dollars in our portfolio. Like that's what the science tells us the consequence is. So there are short-term profits to be made by uh, continuing to lend on oil, gas, and coal, uh, but everyone will collectively suffer financially if we don't. We have a thesis at Irving Green that if banks have to decarbonize their lending portfolio because of disclosure, they're going to have to look at their largest asset class to do that, which is real estate. And so we're hoping that there'll be a different type of transformation for financing for real estate. We're going to talk about that on, uh, on the panel later. But you've been up and close with this. You've actually filed shareholder resolutions um, on behalf of the pension funds. What are, what are the banks saying to you about disclosure? Uh, I mean, you know, I think... Uh, one of the challenges is that you know they are they have not been helping move the SEC forward. So more broadly, not just banks but financial institutions have cast a lot of doubt 
unscope three measurement. Um, and I was, you know, talking. You know, uh, Larry Fink has been clear about this publicly. Like he, uh, you know, pshaws at scope three. Um, so there's been a real undermining of, of scope three evaluation. Oh, that's so hard to do. It's upstream. It's downstream. But um, so that has been a real problem. Um, and yeah, you know, this this year, unfortunately, the vast majority of the shareholder resolutions, including ours, including Sierra Clubs. Uh, were opposed by the bank, by all the banks we filed them at, and they didn't do very well. They only got 11, 12% of investor uh, votes. And, you know, I think one, they're pointing to all of the climate solutions, loans, and investments. And I'm thrilled with all of the climate solutions, loans, and investments. We've committed to dramatically to grow our climate solutions investments to $50 billion over the next decade. It's great that the IRA is juicing those investments. It's great that there's so many opportunities. Um, uh, so, so there's a lot of pointing at that. Like, look at all the climate solutions investing we're doing, which is wonderful. And the fact that the price of renewables has come down so much so that in most of the world now, the cheapest way to produce new power is renewably is fantastic. But if what we do is, per, is consume lots and lots of newly cheap renewable power and all of the fossil fuel generated power that we're already producing because there's no drawdown plan, we will blow past, um, you know, we'll probably blow past 2.7 or 3 degrees. So uh, we have to prevent that from happening. So the banks pointed their climate solutions investments. I think there's a certain amount of kind of magical thinking about carbon capture you know, somehow like that genie will like emerge from the box and just help me from having to actually take the hard but clear steps. So um, we've talked about banks. What about other investment uh, sectors that you look at? You know, what is the receptivity to disclosure in other sectors? Yeah. I mean, this is where like receptivity, when the SEC says everyone has to disclose, yeah. everyone will disclose. And until the SEC makes the rule, everyone will tell you how hard it is. Like that's just the nature of regulation. Like regulated entities don't want to be regulated. And then when the regulations exist, the vast majority of people comply. And I think that's what you're seeing um, in private equity, in public equities, in financial institutions, pr pretty much across the board. And um, just remind us again, the, the requirements you're placing on the investments that you're doing. Yeah. So we put out uh, earlier this year in the spring what I think are the most ambitious net zero implementation plans for the three of five, five pension funds and three of them, NICERS, Teachers, and the Board of Education. Uh, unfortunately, not yet, including the firefighters and police officers funds. Uh, made these very, you know, we had made a big commitment like everyone else to net zero, but now we put out an uh, implementation plan to make it really clear. So one is, is disclosure starting immediately of scopes one, two, and three annually, um, you know, with interim targets and annual disclosure against them. Uh, two, most of our portfolios managed by uh, asset managers from the world's biggest BlackRock, but including also many you know, private equity, real estate, private credit, um, foreign equities, asset managers. And we've said for all of them, you know, we want um, their commitment in getting to 70% uh, of our financed emissions with scope one and two targets by 2025, and 90% of our financed emissions with scope one, two, and three verifiable science-based targets by 2030. Uh, all of our managers uh, starting next year, 
to themselves have a decarbonization plan that's essentially consistent with those goals uh, and targets, uh, uh, as well as then, as I mentioned, a big increase in climate solutions investments, growing those to 50 billion. Our portfolio is currently 257 billion, so, and it's about 6 billion of our current investments are climate solutions. And then we, those three funds had divested their fossil fuel reserve owners. That vote had taken place a couple of years ago and we completed it last year. Uh, we are now implementing something comparable in private markets, in private equity and real estate. So that was just implemented. And then we've been clear, uh, and I think this is one area where having done some divestment really helps because we're going to do engagement first. We're going to go to our largest finance emitters, you know, whether that's a utility company or a construction company, and say, okay, here's our timeline. Where are your science-based targets? Show us you've set them and show us you're following them. And that's great. That's what we want to happen. Um, if you'll engage with us, that's what real-world decarbonization looks like, is changing your operations moving forward toward uh, a real net zero plan. But let's be clear, if you won't engage with us, if you won't set science-based targets, if you won't disclose how you're hitting them, there will come a point where we can't continue to uh, invest with this manager or in this portfolio company. Um, and the fact that we have done divestment for shows we're serious. So I want to wrap up uh, with a question on Local on 97, because that's going to be the, the uh, remainder of our discussion of our program today. A big week yesterday, the Department of Buildings released the next round of uh, implementing regulations for Local Law 97, so it's on everybody's mind. Yeah. But back to this conversation, what do you think the role of finance is in responding to Local Law 97? Yeah, this is a big and important question, and I will confess I have not yet had time to go through the 50 pages of rules that were released yesterday and compare them to the report we released a couple of months ago. So there's a rules hearing in October, and by then I'll be ready to really go through and, and um, uh, but it's important to get the rules out and have some real clarity, and this is, you know, like, what we want here is genuinely mobilizing the investment and construction and design and building transformation work necessary to do something that is, is really significant. I mean, it's going to grow the building retrofit work 20-fold or something, you know, it's a huge thing. Uh, getting the investment to do it is obviously essential and many of those steps do pay for themselves and therefore there will be finance capital available but many of those steps won't sufficiently pay for themselves because you know uh, they just don't necessarily reduce your overall cost if you've got to swap out your boilers it's a range of ways where um, especially on those costs so we need to bring some additional capital in, and that can come from a range of places. That can come uh, from the PSC, who will be adjusting their systems benefit charge, and there's work to do to make sure a good chunk of that money can go for this. That can be from uh, the IRA, which you know, contains some pots of money that I think could be used uh, for this purpose. Um, but this is a really critical question. That could be for residential buildings by a new version of J51, the retrofit tax credit that could be tied both to decarbonization and, importantly, to tenant protections, because we don't want the charges passed through in an already very unaffordable city. So we're going to look at all those things, but it's really important, like the capital to do this, uh, both what can bear return and what needs to be subsidized, is really critical. And I, you know, that's not in the rules themselves. You know, I know that's something 
that Rit Agarwal and the city team care about, but we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, it's critical to have the rules and be clear when people have to enforce them, what the timeline is, but bringing in those additional sources of, of capital to make those investments uh, is, is critical. Final question, and you, and you, you just prompted it for me, but um, it's true, a lot of the investments have a payback, but it's also true that some of them are just longer than normal payback horizons. Do you think we've come to a point where the climate crisis is a life safety issue? Because we don't question the payback of putting in a sprinkler system in a building. So is there, if we come to the point for those things that don't have a natural payback, that there is a different reason why that investment needs to be made? Well, yes. I mean, we, we're, this is, this is sort of like what I said about the difference between how great it is people are scaling up their climate solutions investments. Those places people can make money uh, are wonderful, and that's great, and we want to encourage it. But we have to draw down fossil fuels, even if burning them would make more money, uh, because in the end. So, and and absolutely the same is true here. Look at you know, in, in just look at the planet. There's, you know, I mean, in the heat wave, what the the places where we are seeing increased climate deaths, and know that they're going to increase every year. Absolutely, it's a climate emergency. Um, at the same time. You, it doesn't work to enforce a rule that people can't afford to do without a plan for enabling it to happen. That's just kind of the reality. You, you know, we won't work by fiat to say, not only do you have to do the things that will have payback, you must do the things that won't, even though you, you, you can't afford them and we are not going to help you afford them. So that is, you know, uh, now, how do you determine who gets the subsidy and who will be expected to do it on their own dime? That's the critical next step, next step of work. I mean, there's just no way around the city being very strenuously involved in it. Great, well, I wish we had another three hours with you, but we'll have to leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, the controller of the Thank you for listening to this episode. I'd like to thank Urban Green staff for their assistance in putting this all together and our members and sponsors for their support. If you'd like to become a member or a sponsor, please visit urbangreencouncil.org. Thank you again for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and subscribing to it in your favorite podcast app so you'll get immediate access to all upcoming conversations. See you next time.